Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. I'm so glad that Joel asked you to be friendly, unlike normal, uh, right? <laughs> I'm not sure what he's really saying, but uh, that's so great. Hey, my name's Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Church of Rocky Peak. If this is your very first time, we're really glad you're here. I've, I've got one quick announcement of my own before we go into our time of teaching. It's a very important one. Is that, you know, the last year and a half, God has been calling us as a church to do these initiatives for the poor. And so you, you know, if you've been here, we've done all kinds of things, you know, Homeless, you know, blankets, food here in L.A., farm animals at Christmas time, all kinds of different things. But, but one of our most successful initiatives has been uh, doing, kind of creating, uh, drilling water wells around the world for people that, that don't have water. And so you may not know this, but around the world there's about a billion people that don't have fresh water. And so every day they've got to make a long trek, uh, miles and miles to get water. Often when they get there, they're drinking water that's from polluted streams full of bacteria that's causing them and their families to get very sick. And so, uh, so several times we've done these kind of initiatives for the poor where we've raised money to drill uh, kind of well waters in the name of Christ uh, for uh, wa- where, where uh, people can have fresh water. And so uh, this, this uh, Easter, we're going to be doing that again. So it's starting a week from today, we're going to be doing that. And, and the way we go about it, if you've never been here during one, is it's a one-week water fast. And so what you do is for one week, you only drink water, kind of like a juice fast, you only drink juice. In a water fast, you only drink this water. And, and so what you do then is you keep careful track of all the money you would have spent uh, if you hadn't been on a water fast. You go to Starbucks, you got to lunch, uh, even at home. Like Lynn and I put up a, a little score tab on our refrigerator. You know, had a cup of tea, had another cup of tea, had 18 cups of tea, whatever. Uh, whatever you're drinking, you put up there. And then at the end of the week, you just figure up, kind of tally every day, and you figure up at the end of the week how much money you spent. And we bring it in. And it's been amazing. The last two times we've done this, we've raised about $30,000 uh, each time to drill uh, well water. So uh, last, uh, last year, we did this at Easter. We, we drug uh, three wells in Uganda. We got the full report back. I'm sending an email this week out that I have some quotes about that. Um, but, but anyway, this year we contacted Living Water International, which is our partner, and we said, what do you need this year? They said, what we really need is in northern Uganda. And some of you probably follow this because in the last couple of weeks, this, this uh, video has gone viral. But uh, there's, this, uh, there, there's this invisible children video that's kind of uh, described this, the reign of terror from this, this, uh, this rebel man uh, named uh, Joseph Kony. And uh, I've known him for many years, but, but uh, invisible children has raised it to the surface for like over the last 25 years uh, that some estimates is he has, he has stolen over 100,000 children from homes in northern Uganda. And so what he does is he, he goes in with this rebel army, destroys the village, grabs the kids, makes the kids kill their parents right there in front of their eyes as the first step to make them part of his rebel army and turn them into either child soldiers or uh, sex slaves. And so uh, it's just a horrendous thing, mutilates kids, it's just a horrendous story. If you haven't checked it out, YouTube, Invisible Children, check it out. But uh, anyway, they said what's happened is that we could use your help because we're going into these many villages in northern Uganda, uh, where now Kony's no longer there, but we're, we're helping... Uh, them kind of refurbish their wells because when Coney would come, he would destroy their wells. Cost about three thousand bucks to restore a well, refurbish it, redrill it, whatever. And so that's what our money is going to be going for. So next week, when you come to church, uh, we're doing this whole church uh, from elementary kids through middle school, through high school, college, uh, all the way up. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, this, this water fast. And so what we're going to ask is that when you come next week, if you feel like God's putting this on your heart to join us, uh, when you come in, you'll get a, a blue bracelet as thus, I am the mannequin. Um, and uh, 
And, and then we'll do a one-week fast. We'll bring in the money we saved on Easter weekend. We'll see how much money we can raise. Does that sound good? Does that sound exciting about that? And uh, so we'll continue that, that, uh, those initiatives for the poor. Uh, but uh, we're going to actually be going into our time of teaching now. And so if you're brand new, you won't know this, but inside your program is a message note sheet. So I uh, encourage you to take that out. And if you guys are all set, I'm ready. You guys, you all set to go? All right, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we're just so thankful for what you're doing here in our church and in our lives on so many fronts. And today as we come and talk about this important topic of accountability, and what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be living in community with one another? We're loving one another, coming around one another. And in the hard times when we're tempted to make wrong choices, coming around each other to hold each other accountable so we stay on track and live the life you've called us to live and we protect the body. Uh, we pray that you would speak with power today, great, great clarity, instruction, speak through me and power my voice. Be with this church, God, as we gather around your word under the authority of your spirit. We crack it open. We, we listen to you. We pray that you'd come and speak now in a way that changes us from this point on. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, today we're, uh, we're continuing uh, the series that we've been in the last two or three weeks. It's called The Power and the Pain, uh, God in the Hard Times. And if you've been here throughout the series, the, the, you know kind of a little bit of background. That what we've learned is that this, this series is just a four-week series. It's based on uh, the opening couple chapters of a letter that was written from a man we call the Apostle Paul to a church that he had actually started about five years before in the southern tip of Greece. It's in an international city of Corinth. It's, that city is still there today. And so one of the issues he's dealing with in this letter is there's a major rebellion that's been going on in this church against Paul. And, and one of the reasons is that there, there are some people that have come in the church and they're teaching, kind of accusing that Paul is not a true apostle. He's not a true chosen representative of Jesus, kind of handpicked by Jesus to speak with his authority. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. But one of the issues that's come up, and we began to talk about this last week, is the issue of integrity. And so there are some of his critics who are saying uh, Paul is not a man of integrity, and he doesn't keep his word. And if you can't trust him, why would we ever trust his message? And how could he ever be a real apostle? And of course, if they reject Paul and his message, then they're going to reject Jesus who sent him, and their whole spiritual life is going to go down the tube. And so one of the issues that's come up, uh, we began to talk about it last week, is that Paul has had a recent change in travel plans, and that's caused his critics to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, here it is, once again, you can't trust him. And so let me, let me just set that up and do a quick review and then set up where we're going today. So here's the situation. Paul had written them a letter. He said, I'm going to come and visit you in Corinth. And then after I've been with you a while, I'm going to travel north to the cities above you that, that I've started churches in, the cities of Macedonia. And then after I visited them, I'm going to return back a second time, and I'm going to spend some more time with you. And then after that, I'm going to sail off to Jerusalem. So that was his itinerary. That was the plan. But the problem was, once he got to Corinth, it just everything had broke loose. I mean, what had happened was that these false teachers had come in. They had led this rebel movement. There's actually a rogue leader who's risen up, taken over the church, and kind of the people have followed him in kind of against Paul and his, his leadership. And so when Paul gets there, it's this horrible situation, and he realizes that if he comes on strong and really calls this man out, it's probably going to cause the whole church to split. And so out of his love for them, he decides, you know what, I'm just going to pull away from the situation. He changes his travel plans. He ends up going back to the city of Ephesus where he had come from, which is in uh, a modern-day Turkey, and then he writes a very painful uh, kind of letter of rebuke. 
And in this letter, he calls them out and says, what are you doing? You need to be following Jesus. You need to be coming under apostolic authority. You need to get rid of this leader that's in, in position. You need to put him out of your church, kind of remove him from leadership, and you need to come back to Christ. And so fortunately, the letter works really well. Most of the people there, not all, we'll talk about it later, but most of them respond to Christ. They, they remove this person from leadership, put him out of the church. But there's still a lot of people there that are not sure it's the right decision. There's still a lot of people there who are criticizing Paul. And they're saying, look, see, there he goes again. He said he was going to come, go north, come back, visit a second time. He didn't do it. Just one more example of his lack of integrity. And so in this passage today, Paul is going to begin to jump in and say, no, here's the real reason why I did what I did. And in the process, we're going to learn some powerful things about accountability. And so if you have your uh, uh, Bible, uh, turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse uh, 23. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you could look out with someone who does. If you, if you need a Bible, uh, there's some great ones in our bookstore. and they'd, We'd love to help you kind of find the one that would work for you because we definitely are going to use it every week. So anyway... Uh, in 123, he jumps in and he begins to tell them the real reasons. So, so there in your note sheet where the section's called Paul's Change of Plans, the real reason. So here we go, 123. Paul says, I, I call God as my witness. So it's almost like he's taking the witness stand in court now. And he's saying, I, I'm, you know, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That's what he's saying. I, I call God as my witness that, that it was in order to spare you that I didn't return to Corinth. So it's true he didn't return to Corinth, but the reason was, was not because he wasn't keeping his word. The reason was because the situation had blown up and he wanted to spare them the pain. When he had been there, it was a very painful, horrible visit. And, and so he'd withdrawn. And so he said, that was in order to spare you not to go, that I came back. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith. And so there were many in Corinth who were accusing Paul of being sort of a power freak, a control freak. And he says, well, no, we're not trying to control you. That's not what this is about. Um, but he says, uh, but we, we work with you for your joy. And so that, that's what our heart is. We're, we're, we're about helping you grow, helping you find your, your joy, what you're created to be. And then he says, uh, because, because it's by your faith that you stand firm. And so these new teachers have come in challenging Paul. They're bringing what he's going to call later a different gospel, a different Jesus. And, and Paul really just wants to make sure they're coming under Christ's authority and pursuing him because it's by their faith in Christ they're going to stand firm. All right. And so he says, so I made up my mind, verse 1, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. It doesn't make any sense. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? Like if I come back, we have a horrible experience, it really does no one any good. So I wrote you as I did. Remember, he went back to Ephesus. He wrote this painful letter. He says, I wrote you as I did so that when I do come, kind of the next time, um, that I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. And it will be a great time of reunion. I had confidence in all of you that you would share my joy. So, so Paul writes a letter. Hey, you need to remove this guy from leadership, put him out of your church, and, and kind of deal with this issue. Come back to Christ, repent, so that when I come, we'll share joy again. That will be a joyous kind of reunion. And so verse four, he says, for I wrote to you out of great distress, this painful letter, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart. And so, so this was a very painful situation for Paul. It was a very painful situation. I mean, he had started this church. He had led these people to Christ. They're his, he's their spiritual leader. He's an apostle. He loves these people to death. And he had gone back and they basically rejected it. 
they basically said, we don't want you as our apostle, we want to follow this new direction. It was a very painful situation for them, very painful for Paul. And so he says, I I wrote to you uh, out of great distress, anguish of heart, with many tears. And just notice how vulnerable he is. We'll talk about that later. We get to chapter 7, the vulnerability that God calls us to uh, as Christ's followers. But uh, he says, and he said, I wrote to you not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love. So the reason I wrote was not to put you down or make you feel bad, but but just let you know what you're up against and how much I do love you. And he says, if anyone has caused grief... Now at this point, uh, he seems to be talking about this rogue leader. He says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. So obviously, Paul's been hurt, but he says, you know, my concern is not really me. My concern is you and the damage that's been done at this church. And verse 6, so the punishment inflicted on him. And so this, this leader had been pulled out of leadership, apparently put out of the church as, a, as an act of church discipline, right? We'll, we'll talk about that later. He says, but this punishment inflicted on him by the majority. Now catch that. By the what? Majority. majority. And this is very important as we go through Corinthians. You catch this. Paul's writing to a church that's gone through a basic church split. And if you've ever gone through that, you know how painful that is. But what's, what happens in a church split is that like, everyone doesn't agree on everything, right? So he's written this letter, get rid of this leader, remove him from leadership, put him out of the fellowship, come back to Christ. And most of the churches listen, the majority is listen, but there are many people that haven't listened. There are many people who are still criticizing Paul. There are many people who are still questioning his leadership. There are many people that are still entertaining this different gospel that's brought by these new leaders. And, and so in this letter, as you go through it, it's not like they're one group that Paul can speak to. It's like he's speaking to this group that's repentant and encouraging them. He's speaking to this group that's repentant and saying, hey, here's some ammunition to defend me to the critics. But he's also speaking to these people over here. I'm not sure who to follow. And he's also speaking to these people over here that they're like, we think you're uh, crazy. We shouldn't be following you. And so different messages throughout the letter. So it's almost like if you're out in the ocean, you know, you're walking and it's a cold spot, then it's a warm spot. It's like as you go through this letter, there's times where he's really reaching out and being very tender with them. There's other times he's being very confrontational. And the reason is he's speaking to different groups. And it's important we catch that dynamic as we go through the letter. And so anyway, he says in verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him being removed from leadership by the majority, it's sufficient. It's done its work. So apparently once they removed him from leadership, uh, that it's done its work, that he's turned around, he's come back to Christ. And of course, this is the whole point of any time you have to remove someone from a church, which is like the most extreme form of discipline. We'll talk about that later. But the goal is not to destroy them. The goal is to help bring them back. That's, That's the whole point. And so, so here's what happens in this day and age. Uh, like when, when, if, when you have to remove someone from a fellowship, and we have to do that sometimes here at Rocky Peak, that when you remove someone from a fellowship, uh, like in this stage, what do they typically do? Okay, they leave here. What do they do? They go to another church, right, who doesn't know the history typically, right, and so they just continue on. But let's put ourselves back there. In that day and age, there was no other church, right? So, so when you left the church of Corinth, there was no other place to go have fellowship with other Christ followers. I mean, you were out there on your own. And so, 
So this is the whole point of church discipline. It helps you understand if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to follow Jesus. Because if you want to be with Jesus' people, then you have to be with Jesus. You see, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. So he says, but apparently this had worked very well with him. And he said, it's sufficient. So he said, so now instead, now that he's willing to turn back, he says, you ought to forgive him and comfort him. So we're going to receive him back. We're going to welcome him back so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so, so Paul loves this man. He's caused, caused Paul a lot of pain, caused the church a lot of pain, but Paul loves him. It's nothing personal. He just wants to get him back and get him restored in fellowship. And he says, so I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Now he says, the reason I wrote to you in this painful letter was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. And so he was their apostle. He speaks with apostolic authority. He speaks for Jesus. They were rejecting him. They were rejecting the message. They were rejecting Jesus. And so he writes this letter and says, you need to remove this guy. It was actually a test of their willingness to follow Christ. And fortunately, they had passed the test. And then he goes on. He says, but I want you to know that if you've forgiven anyone, this kind of leaders of this rebel movement, if you've forgiven anyone, I want you to know that I also forgive him. And so I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life, but if someone in your life hurts someone you care about very much, that long after they've made up, you're still mad, right? And so you're like, well, I don't care. They forgave them, but I, like, I'm still mad. That just wasn't right. And that's what Paul doesn't want to have happen. This rogue leader, they, a lot of people in the church, they know that he's hurt Paul. And, and they're like, that wasn't right. I want to stick up for Paul. And Paul's like, no, no, no. I've forgiven him. You've forgiven him. I've forgiven him. We all want to move on here. And so he says, uh, uh, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. He says, I want you to know, I've gone before Jesus. I've forgiven this man for your sake. I want this church just to move on. Let's welcome him back. And he says, in order that Satan might not outwit us. Now, in this interesting, one of the things we learn is that one of the things we, we know about Satan is that he hates any church that's following Jesus, right? And so you do understand this, that as a church here, as we follow Jesus, and you, you do understand, the closer we get to Jesus, the greater the attacks we'll be under as a church. You understand that? That Satan hates a church that's serious about following Christ. And so he will always come at it a variety of ways to try to bring that church down. And so Paul says here in Corinth, Satan's plan A, his first plan of attack, was to inspire this rebellion against Paul. But now that the church has repented of that, it worked for a while, but now that they've repented and they've come back and they've removed this leader, now what's Satan gonna do? Hey, let's get really, let's be really, let's inspire them to be really harsh with this rogue leader. Let's crush him and let's cause a division in the church over the way we're dealing with him. See? So Satan's always going to try this in your life, and he's going to try that in your life. And same way in a church. And so he says, so uh, in order that Satan might not outwit us, that we, so we're not be, uh, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Okay? And so it's a passage about integrity. Paul's integrity is being questioned. Paul says, no, the reason I changed my plans was not because of a lack of integrity. It was because of my love for you that it just didn't make any sense coming back. And so that's why I wrote this letter. But now you've responded well. And so now here's what you need to do the next step of this kind of journey to, to bring healing to your, your church, okay? And, and so it's, it's a message about accountability. It's a message about uh, a discipline and church discipline. And so what we want to talk today about is what I'm calling accountability in the hard times. And so let's step back for just a second. In this series, we've been talking about hard times, haven't we? 
And we've been talking about God in the hard times and how at times God will allow hard times to come into our life because there in the hard times is where God meets us, shapes us, molds us, changes us, reveals himself in new ways, leads us to points of surrender and power, begins to reveal his power in and through us and to prepare us to speak with power and authority in the lives of others in hard times, right? So we've talked about that. There are times when God allows hard times to shape us, haven't we? But have you ever noticed there are other times that we go through hard times that have nothing to do with God's plan for our life? They have to do with our rebellion, right? And and so there's times when we rebel against God's plan, we rebel against his word, against his Holy Spirit, and we end up going through hard times, not because he wanted, but because of our rebellion, Like here in Corinth, they were going through this horrendous time as a church, not because it was God's plan, because they were following Satan's plan. Uh, uh, This rogue leader who'd gone through this great pain, been removed from leadership, put out of a, he was going through pain, not because it was God's plan, but because it was his rebellion. And so there are times in our life where we will get off track spiritually and we will go through very painful times. And here's what we're going to learn today, that during those times, it is essential that we are part of a, 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 a community of Christ followers who understands the role of accountability. Because at those times, you better hope and pray you have someone who loves you good enough, strong enough, who's gonna come after you and not let you just walk on the path of destruction and ruin your life, you see? And so, so today we're gonna talk about the role of accountability and, and church discipline in the life of a healthy Christ follower in the life of a healthy church. And so there on your note sheet, you have a section and it's called Accountability 101, The Gift of Tough Love. And just kind of three very important principles. Can I, and can I say this, men and women? This is one of these messages that is absolutely critical for us as a church to catch. That, that if we are going to unleash a movement of Christ followers, passionate Christ followers, if we are going to grow to our full potential in Christ, if you're going to experience God's plan for your life, it is vital that we understand these principles. And so number one, The first thing that jumps out at me is something we talked about last week, that accountability is a non-negotiable. That for you as a follower of Jesus, you have to have people in your life who can hold you accountable. It's just a a non-negotiable. So if you were here last week, we talked about integrity. And we talked about for, for the follower of Jesus, integrity is a non-negotiable. Remember that? We talked about this, that in the life of a Christ father, integrity is not optional equipment on the Christian life, that it's part of the core calling. As God is a God of integrity, we're called to be God of integrity. Well, what I'm saying this week is in the same way that accountability is a non-negotiable. And let me explain why. The moment a man or woman comes to Jesus and gives them their lives, we ask Jesus to come in and save us from our sin and the sentence of death. The the moment that we ask Jesus to take over our life, to be our our Savior and our Lord, the moment we bow the knee and we receive the gift of his Holy Spirit and we're forgiven, the moment that happens, according to the New Testament, we enter into a new relationship with God, a new vertical relationship with God where God becomes our Father, right? He wasn't our Father before, but now God becomes our Father And so there's this new vertical relationship. But what we often fail to miss in the United States, okay, 
is that when we enter into a new vertical relationship with God, at the same time, we enter into a new horizontal relationship with every other follower of Jesus. And so we enter into, we not only have a new father, we have new what? Brothers and sisters, right? And so, so this is why in the New Testament, this is why it always refers to brothers and sisters, new relationship with father and brothers and sisters. And so the moment you became a follower of Jesus, you became part of a new family. And here's what I want you to catch. God has not called us, contrary to common belief, God has not called us to be a dysfunctional family. All right? Now, the reality is some of you here have grown up, no show of hands, some of you have grown up here in highly dysfunctional families, haven't you, right? And, and what is one of the greatest, one of the, one of the marks of a dysfunctional family is that in a dysfunctional family, there can be things going on that are incredibly evil or destructive that even other families will know, other, other members of the family know about but nobody does anything about it. Are, are you with me? This is one of the classic signs of the dysfunctional family that, 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 uh, there is, that, that, that there's a sexual molestation going on in the family and everyone knows the uncle did it, but no one is dealing with that, right? Because we don't want to cause any ripples in the family uh, as if the molestation is not causing a ripple in the family. Uh, that there is physical abuse going on, but, but no one will speak to the abuser. No one will hold them accountable. That, that someone's got a drug or alcohol uh, problem. Dad's an alcoholic, but, but mom's the word. We're going to keep this under wraps. And no one's going to say anything. We're all going to pretend like this is normal, and it's tearing the family apart. Uh, older brother has a drug addiction problem, and, and we're just all pretending like it's not there. And so one of the marks of a dysfunctional family is that evil and destructive things that can happen that are ruining the life of the person, but also ruining the family, and no one does anything. We just turn the other way, right? And, and so what we learn in the New Testament is that God has not called us to be a dysfunctional family. That so when someone is on the path to destruction, when someone is on the path of danger, when someone's causing destruction in the family, that we're not to overlook that, we're to move towards it and hold that person accountable both for their sake and for the sake of the family, you see? And that this is a core calling of a Christ it's, it's, it's a non-negotiable. Now it's interesting because this teaching comes from Jesus himself. And I would like you to turn there to Matthew 18. There, there are several passages in the New Testament, just tons of passages talk about this, but, but I'm gonna talk with you about Matthew 18. I, I wanna go to Jesus because this is such a countercultural concept we're talking about today. I'm not sure you'll believe it unless I kind of pin it on Jesus. So, so here we go. Uh, as Christ followers, we're kind of obligated to listen to Jesus. So uh, Matthew 18. Now, now let me set this up. Uh, in this passage, Jesus is going to be talking about what to do when your brother sins against you, all right? Now, now, let me define for you, let me define sin. I'm not talking about someone hurts your feelings, all right? I I'm not talking about gray areas that Christians often disagree on, people who love Jesus and love his word and are walking in obedience, but I'm not talking about should you celebrate Halloween? You know, I'm not talking about should you drink? I'm not talking about should you see this kind of rated movie? I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. 
I'm talking about clear, black and white. Uh, Jesus spells it out. Here is the dark side, right? This is sin. This is a rebellion against God. This is a violation of the law of love. This violates the ethical norm and standards of the New Testament. And so throughout the New Testament, we often have these lists that are like sin lists. Uh, or, or for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, which is a passage that talks about uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, holding each other accountable and talks about church discipline. And, and in that passage, there's a man in the church who is uh, living with, sleeping with a woman who's not his wife, which by biblical definition, to sleep with anyone who is not your spouse uh, uh, and not, you know, uh, uh, anything outside of a man-woman uh, relationship, right, that's lifelong commitment of love uh, for the rest of your life is what we call marriage. Any sex outside of that is called uh, sexual immorality. And so th- they've got a man who is living with another woman and they've confronted him. He's not willing to turn. And so Paul says, listen, he says, as followers of Jesus, he says, if anyone claims to be a follower of Jesus, he claims to be a brother, a family member, and yet he's living in clear-cut sin. And he gives some examples of that. Sexual immorality would be an example. Uh, ripping people off would be uh, financially. That's an example. Slander is an example. Uh, drunkenness. You're, you're kind of going, going out and, and kind of uh, clubbing and getting kind of wasted. Like that, there's an example. Uh, uh, he gives an example of idolatry. He gives an example of greed, right? And then there's other passages in the New Testament that kind of similar things, like in Titus chapter 3, it says if you have a person in your church that just keeps on causing division wherever they go, you warn them a couple times and then you have nothing to do with them. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 says if someone's in your church and they won't work to support their family, they're lazy, just have nothing to do with them. And so in the New Testament, it spells out sin. Right? Sin is a violation of the law of love. It's a rebellion against God that's destructive against our lives or destructive against other lives. And so that's what we're talking about today, sin. Okay, we're all clear? So I'm not talking about kind of peripheral things. We're talking about sin. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. So in this teaching, what Jesus is talking about is if someone personally sins against you, but the rest of the New Testament flushes out, if there's any sin going on like this in the body of Christ, what to do. So, so Jesus is giving a specific example, principles much larger. So let's, let's look what he says. He says, if, uh, if your brother sins against you, so he, he kind of commits this high-handed sin, he says, here's what you're to do. You're to go and show him his faults. So in other words, you, you go and have a conversation. Hey, what's up? Uh, let's talk about this. And so you just kind of bring it to his attention. You do it just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, this is very important. If he listens to you, you have, what's your next words? You have what? You've won your brother over. Can we say that again? You have won your brother over. And that's very important because one of the things we're going to be talking about later is that when we hold each other accountable, we are not trying to make someone feel bad. We, we are not trying to shame them. We're not trying to say, I can't believe you'd be the last person I'd ever think would do. It's none of that. We're not trying to humiliate. We're not, we're not trying to cause them pain. What we're trying to do is restore them, right? So when you move towards them and you confront them, the whole goal is to win them over. That's all you're trying to do. He says, verse 16, but if he will not listen... 
then you should take one or two others along. We're going to ratchet up the accountability so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says when you bring someone to court and you're accusing them of a crime, you have to have at least two or three witnesses. That's what he's quoting. He says same principle. Like when you, when you ratchet up, you're going to take a couple other brothers or sisters in the family and say, hey, what's going on? You're kind of violating family norms here. And he says, and so if he refuses to listen even to them, you're going to tell it to the church. Now, churches in those days, very small. They, they tend to be house churches. And so I'm not sure it's an appropriate in a large church like Rocky Peak when someone's disciplined or whatever, you bring them up from the whole church. People most people don't know that person. But in their circle of influence, in, in, in the, the ministries they're involved in or in the, the life group they're involved in or whatever it is, that, that you, you take it to the next level, right? You're ratcheting it up. And he says, but if he refuses to listen even to the church, Church, then we're going to treat him as we would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, he, he can't be part of the fellowship anymore. He can't be part of this community of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul fleshes this out for us. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, that passage we talked about, where it talks about this man who's sleeping with someone, not his wife. And he says, hey, listen, you know, if someone claims to be a Christ follower, but they're living in sin and they refuse to turn from it, he says, don't even have dinner with them. Uh, you need to put them out of the church, right? And so, so this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. We, we go towards sin. We hold accountable. The goal is restoration. Usually it works at a very low level. But if someone is particularly stubborn, then at the end result, you're going to actually ask them not to be out in part of the church until they have turned. Now, would you agree with me that that is both clear and severe? Would, would you agree with me? That in our culture, that sounds both clear, right, but it's also severe. And so the question is, why would Jesus say this? Like, why would he draw that line in the sand? Why, why would this be, why would it be so strong, right? Like, why wouldn't he say, let them, hey, just keep coming to church. At least they're coming to church. Maybe it'll help them turn around, right? Like, why would he say, like, hey, you know, judge not, lest you be judged, right? Oh, he did say that. Uh, uh, and so we misunderstand that. So, so we think that that means we're not to hold accountable, which is clearly not what he meant. He was talking about being judgmental and looking down our nose and having a condemning attitude that we're better than others, you see? But clearly Jesus is it's both, it's both clear and it's severe. So the question is, why is this so important? And I wanna give you the two reasons. And you might wanna write these down. These are just, uh, I'll give you a couple quick phrases. The first reason this is so important is, is what we call, the first phrase would be tough love. That, that when we move towards someone who is heading down the wrong path, that, that what we're trying to do is reach out to them in love. We're not trying to make them feel bad. We're not trying to put them down. We're not trying to put ourselves up. We're, we're, they're headed for disaster. They're headed for destruction. Something that's gonna ruin their lives and ruin the lives of And so if you care about people, you're gonna hold them accountable. And so this is, for example, what an intervention's about. Like, like several of you have gone through an intervention in your life. You have a brother, a sister, a mother, a son, or something like that. That, that they're maybe they're addicted to alcohol, they're addicted to drugs, and at a certain point, they've not responded to anything else, and so you do an intervention. And if you've ever been a part of that, you know how it works. You usually surprise them. You don't tell them, hey, we'd like to do an intervention. You, uh, 
you kind of set them up, you invite them somewhere. When they walk in the room, you've got key people in their life who love them and who are being affected by their, by their, their choices. And each person just shares from their heart, let me tell you what I'm seeing and let me tell you the impact you're having on my life. You're helping to wake them up. And, and then at the end, you draw a line in the sand and you say, listen, we, we've got a recovery center, a treatment center all set up for you. We, we've we got it all planned. We've talked to your boss. It's ready to go. We, we're ready to drive you there. And so we're going to do everything we can to help you kick this thing. But if you don't, we want you to understand you can't be involved with this family like you've been in the past, right? You draw a line. Why? Because you're helping them to understand the seriousness, the severity, the damage they're doing both to themselves and others. And so you draw a line. And so why do you do that? Do you do that because you hate them or because you're better? No, because you love them. And it's come to this point where you don't know what else is going to come through. And so when we do discipline in a person's life, when it rises to that level, the reason you do it is because you love them. See, see what happens is, is that Satan can deceive us. And what happens is that we, the ultimate deception is to think you can follow Jesus without following Jesus. Right? That's the ultimate deception. And, and that, but this is what happens. As we turn away from Christ, we, we rebel against him, and, and yet somehow we think we still be, believe in Jesus in our heart. No, we don't believe in Jesus because when you believe something, you act on it, right? And so if you, if you say you believe, but you're not following, you don't really believe in a biblical sense of the word. And so it's the, it's the job of the body of Christ to come around and say, listen, understand what you're doing. Your spiritual life is in danger here. And so, so you have to understand this. If you're going to rebel against Jesus, you can't hang out with Jesus' people because we are the body of Christ. If you're cutting yourself off from the head, you can't hang out with the body. And so our job is to help people understand that you can either choose Jesus and let go of the rebellion or you can hold on to the rebellion and let go of Jesus. But you can't do it both ways. And what Jesus has asked as, as his body, that we would represent him well. That we would send the message that Jesus wants to be sent to this person to save them and rescue them before they get so involved and so entwined they get destroyed forever. And so for example, there on your note sheet in James chapter 5, James, you know, the, the brother of Jesus, half brother, he says, my brothers, if any of you should wander from the truth, that's what we're talking about, and someone should bring him back, remember this, that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from what? From death. This is a life and death spiritual issue, right? And so it's because of our love we go after. If you love someone, you will speak into their life, but you will hold them accountable. But number two, there's a second reason why it's so important, and the two key words there are spiritual protection, and what the New Testament says, in fact, the Apostle Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 5, that passage about the man sleeping with someone, not his wife. He says, you know what, that don't, you, don't you get it? He says, sin is contagious. <laughs> like, like sin is like a virus. And it's like if, if you don't deal with it, it'll spread. And, and so it, it's like if someone has a deadly disease, right, that's going to lead them to death, what do you do? You quarantine them. Because if you don't, it's going to spread. And so Paul says that sin is like that. If a church does not deal with open rebellion against Jesus, open rebellion will increase. 
Does that make sense? Like, like if you have people in your life group, like say you're a singles life group, you're, and you have people in your life group that are, are sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend, and everyone knows it, and you're not dealing with it, can I tell you something? I can promise you that will spread through your church. I promise you, right? If, if you have someone who's running an unethical business, and, and people know it, but are turning the other ways, can I, can I tell you something? That there will be other people in the body that start cutting corners to, to, to kind of try, try to make a buck, right? That they promise you will happen. Like if you, if you have some people, they're going out clubbing on Saturday nights or in the library, they're clubbing on Saturday nights and, and they're drinking too much or, or they're kind of overindulging and, and they're getting stoned or whatever. And then, but they're coming to church and they're seeing each other at church. Can I tell you something? That will spread through the culture. Of your, of your church. And the reason is, is because when we allow open rebellion against Jesus to continue, what it does is it lowers the bar for everyone in the church of what's acceptable. And over time, it will tear a church apart. And that's exactly what's happened in churches in the United States, right? This is why the church in the United States is the way it is. There has been no discipline o- over time. And so people are allowed to live high-handed sin and yet continue to be part of the church as if it's okay. And what happens is, is people outside of the church, they look and say, why would I ever want to follow Jesus? You're doing exactly the same things I'm doing, except you're a hypocrite and I'm not, right? And so why would I ever want to follow Jesus? He obviously is not worth following because you're doing life the same way I'm doing. If he was really worth following, you would live life differently, you see? And so so what happens is the church of Jesus degenerates until the church of Jesus is not any different than the world around it and we lose our power, we drag the name of Jesus through the mud, we cause others to mock him because of our sin and rebellion. And it can't go on, right? And so as a church of Jesus here at Rocky Peak, man, we, we are called to a different standard. We're called to a biblical standard. As followers of Jesus, we, we need to hold each other accountable, right? Because we love one another and because we care about one another and because we care about the body of Christ and we care most of all about the name of Jesus and his name and his fame. Amen? Amen. All right. Okay, so, so accountability is a non-negotiable. Now, number two, by, by the way, there you'll see uh, the Apostle Paul. Remember I talked about how it was contagious? Notice that how he compares it to, some of you are bakers, so, uh, he compares it to yeast and bread. And, and there's what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So what Paul says is if you allow this kind of immorality, sexual immorality in your church, if you allow that, guess what? It's going to spread just like yeast and dough and it's going to infect your whole church. All right, number two. Now, this is the flip side, and this flip side uh, is just extremely important, kind of balances this out, and it goes like this, that the goal of accountability is restoration, okay? So when we move towards someone, when we hold each other accountable, uh, when we challenge, when even when we do discipline, if it goes to that level, which hopefully it never gets to that level, but, but when it gets to that level, the goal is always restoration, so, so the goal of discipline, like I've said so many times, is not to put down or make someone feel bad. The goal is to rescue. We love one another, right? And so you see that in this uh, a couple places. We saw it when Jesus teaching. He said, so go to the person one-on-one, and if he listens to you, you have what? Remember? You've won your brother. That's the whole goal. Uh, Paul spells it out in this passage. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, this passage we're in. Now, this was a case of church discipline. 
They had this rogue leader leading a rebellion. He wouldn't listen, so they had to remove him from leadership, put him outside the church. But, but now he's turned around, and so look what Paul says. Verse six, he says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority, it's sufficient, it's done its work. And so he said, now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You, you need, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So he says, bring this person back, you're gonna love on him. And so, so I think the best example of this in the Bible I can think of is the story of the prodigal son. Remember, remember that story? That, you know, this, this kid grows up in Iowa, he's got a wealthy dad, big farm back there. And, and so he goes to his dad, hey, I wanna cash out, can I get my inheritance early? And so he, dad cashes out and the kid comes to Hollywood, right? And he gets to Hollywood, he's on Hollywood and Vine, he's just buying cocaine, he's hooking up with hookers. And so he's spending all of his money, that's exactly what Jesus said, by the way, it's no exaggeration, not the cocaine, but the hookers. Um, but but he's, so he's kind of wild party life, right? And things, he's riding high, but then all of a sudden he runs out of money, he loses his friends, and now he's homeless. And so he decides, he doesn't know what to do, but he kind of comes to his senses. He realizes how he's rebelled against God, he's rebelled against his father, what a stupid thing he's done, he's totally repentant. He decides to go back to Iowa, see his dad, see if they can work this thing out. And so he goes back, and do you remember what the father does when he sees him from a distance? Do you remember this? He, he what? He runs towards his son, right? He runs, throws his arm around. His, his son's like, Dad, I'm just so sorry. I blew it. I sinned against God. I sinned against you. And I, he's just trying to get it out. And the dad doesn't even care. He just can see the son's repentance. He just throws his arms around him, hugs him, welcomes him back, new clothes, throws a party, kills a filet mignon, right? But, but remember, uh, <laughs> remember, remember the older brother wasn't so happy. You remember that? He was kind of ticked off. Like, this guy messed up. He should pay for this, Right? And so there's kind of two mistakes that we make in the body of Christ when it comes to accountability and discipline. The first mistake is what we just talked about is that, is that we don't hold each other accountable. That, that's the first mistake. But the second mistake is equally damaging is when we hold each other accountable but in a harsh way. And you've seen this happen sometimes in, in churches or among believers where we will hold each other accountable but it's almost like like we're excited about this. We get to have you under our, our thumb now. And so from this point on, and even after you turn around, we're never gonna let you forget what you did in your, your past. And you're always gonna be a second class citizen in this church. And so, so yes, you can come to church and we'll forgive you because that's what Jesus says, but you need to sit in the back row. No, no offense. And, and uh, yeah, in case you're wondering, all those people, that's not why they're there, back there. But, uh, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, we call it the hockey penalty box. And so away, it kind of fits. But uh, anyway, um, anyway, so, so, so then we, we kind of hold it over these people, right? So you can be in the church, yeah, but, but you know, hey, you can't really, you'll never be able to lead a life group. You can't really be in a position of leader. You can't be an elder ever. You'll never be able to be a pastor. We, we hold this over people's heads, right? And that's not the spirit of Jesus. Jesus doesn't care where you're coming from. He cares where you're going. And the moment we turn around, uh, then the body of Christ runs to this person to reaffirm our love and to welcome them back. And we throw a party, right? We throw a party because we're so excited you're back on track. You're not ruining your life. You're back with us. And so, and so this is the body of Christ. The goal is restoration. Uh, I was thinking of this in, in my own life. When I was in college, I was in a small accountability group, just me and two other guys, that, that God had kind of brought our lives together in a very profound way, very supernatural way. One of the other guys was another college student my age. The other guy was actually a very young prof who was on staff that we'd met, and through a series of supernatural things, it kind of brought us together. And it was just, we, we met weekly, shared our lives very close, just a great relationship. And, and so one Saturday morning, I get a call from this young prof. 
And, and he says, yeah, I, I can tell he is, just, he is just laid out. I don't know what's going on, but he is upset. Mike, can we get together? Can we get our other buddy in? Can we, can we meet? Can we meet? I know it's just a short notice, but can we meet right away? Something's going on. So, so we meet. We, we come into this, this, uh, this part of the campus, and we're meeting this, in this room that he had access to. And, and we get in there, and he just starts breaking down. He just starts sobbing, and he starts sharing his story that from the time that he was in early high school, he had some same-sex attractions. And he'd come to Christ. He'd given his life to Christ. He'd moved on. He resisted that temptation. He'd gotten married, had a son, but that he still dealt with his temptation at times. Like we all have our temptation. That was his. And so the night before he'd got into the major city where, where, where we live by, we in the major city, he had a one night stand with a man he'd never met before and, and it just broken his heart. And he was just, he, he was just, he was just so ashamed and so broken and, and he was so repentant. I mean, there was no, there was no excuses. There was no uh, explanation. There was no rationale. There was no like, you know, kind of rationalizing this. It was just like, here's what happened and he's just this broken man in front of us and so so what do you do in a situation like that what do you do well I'll tell you what we did we threw our arms around him we said we, we love you we're for you not against you we, we just want to put our arms and we encourage you we want to remind you the promises of Jesus that that it doesn't matter what we've done or where we're going it's where we're it's where we're going in the future not where we come from and, and we share with him about confessing your sins and you're forgiven and we affirm the, the forgiveness of Jesus in his life we, we tried to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that situation and help him get back on track. We said, we will be with you and we'll walk you through this and we'll help you get back on track. And that's what you do, right? That's what you do, right? And so that's the church we wanna be right? We, we've got no room here for judgmentalism. We've got no room for self-righteousness. It's not what this is about. When I, when I talk about holding accountable, we often hear like self-righteousness. No, it's not it. It's about loving people enough to speak into their lives, right? And it's about loving the name of Jesus enough to protect that name. It's about loving the body of Christ to protect the body. It's not about arrogance. It's not about self-righteousness. There's a humility that's involved here, okay? And so, so we're called to restore one another. There on your note sheet, there's a great verse from Galatians chapter six, and it says, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, and that's exactly what happens, is that sometimes we get caught. It's like the word in Greek, it's like you're caught in a trap, right? You, you, you didn't see it, you got caught in a trap. If someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, right? You are spiritual, uh, in other words, uh, in context, led by the Holy Spirit, walking with the Spirit, that's the context. He says you should restore him what? gently and so we don't just let it go on we don't ignore it we're going to move towards it but the goal is to restore him gently and then the next verse I didn't put on there but the next verse says this and you need to watch yourself lest you be tempted what's that saying this is this is not above any of us right any of us could fall any of us could fall and so so it's not about me being better or you being better, it's, it's just about us loving enough to care and to hold accountable. The goal is restoration. Now, number three, the third point is that accountability is countercultural. Accountability is countercultural. In other words, this is not natural in our, our culture. Have you noticed this, that accountability in our culture is not really popular today? Have you, have you noticed this? That, that like in our culture today, 
any attempt to try to hold anyone accountable or to speak into their life is going to get you a response that, hey, it's none of your business, right? Like, like one of our deepest core values as a culture that's far from Jesus, by the way, one of our deepest uh, values is independence. No one tells me what to do. And, and we're living under this false reality that, that we believe that what I do is between me and myself, right? That it, what I do is really no one else's business because it doesn't impact anyone else. Like, are you kidding me? When dad's an alcoholic, you think it doesn't affect anyone else, right? When, 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 uh, when someone's shooting up, you think it doesn't affect anyone else? Do you think when someone's having an affair, it doesn't affect anyone else? It's like we are all related. No man is an island. We, we are all connected. And when one person rebels against God, it has impact. About, and so we can't control the culture. That's, their, that's God's job. But our job is to control the, the community of Christ and, and to realize it's not true. And so here's what happens. That as we sit here today and we study the teaching of Jesus, study of Paul, the teaching of Paul and James, what, what we see is that it's very clear, isn't it? We're to hold each other accountable. And it tells us exactly how to do that. It's very clear. And as we sit here, here here's my burden. As we sit here, I know this. It makes a lot of sense to you. That as followers of Jesus, this is one of the things I love about being in a church of Christ followers. That when you teach the word and you say, here's what it says, and you point it out, everyone goes, yep, I get it, okay? And so that's how we grow. And so, so I know that as we're sitting here, this makes a lot of sense. But can I tell you something? That once we leave this room, it's not going to make sense. And the moment that someone comes into your life and says, can I talk to you about an issue in your life that I'm concerned about? All of a sudden, everything within you is going to say, that's none of your business, why? Because that's the culture tells us, right? And we're all like drinking in the culture all the time. We got drinking that water. And so, and so we, hey, that's none of your business. We're going to get very defensive. We're going to start saying things like, hey, who are you to judge? Jesus said not to judge. I hate it when Christians misquote Jesus, you know? But who are you to judge? You know, Jesus says, judge not. Let's you be judged. Don't you know that? Right? And so we're like, well, what, are you any better? You did this once in your life. And we start getting defensive about that, right? So it happens all the time, right? And so, or what happens, there's someone in our life group who's living in blatant sin. And we know about it. And instead of moving towards it, we go, well, I'm just praying for her. I'm praying for him. I'm just praying that God will open their eyes. No, no, God's not gonna open their eyes. You are gonna open their eyes, right? It's not God's job, it's your job. Right? Because right now they're not listening to God. Right? That's why he's sending you. Okay? That's your responsibility. Or when you hear that someone has been asked to leave Rocky Peak because of a, a discipline issue, that everything within you is going to say, how can they do that? I'm not so, that's not really right. Is that something Jesus would do? <laughs> the answer is yes. That's exactly what Jesus would do. And so the moment that happens, like, well, I don't know. And who made that decision? When well, you know that Mike and how he is, you know, or whatever. And, and so <laughs> probably those elders and what, you know, what, whatever. But, but you see what happens is what happens is we fall right back into the culture, right? We fall right back in the culture. But I guarantee you, if anyone's ever asked to leave Rocky Peak, there has been prior conversation about that. If anyone's ever asked to leave here, the word is going to be opened up and said, here's what it says. Where do you stand, right? That, that we don't want people to leave here. It's the last thing we want is people to leave here. We want to grow together. 
But if it ever comes to that point, you need to understand this. This process has gone through. These conversations have taken place. And this person has basically said, I will not follow Jesus. And so at that point, we say, well, then Jesus asks us to let you not be here so you understand that you can't follow Jesus and not follow Jesus. And that's what happens. So, so as we wrap this up, I've got two questions for you. As you apply this to your life, as we try to break through this counter, this cultural fog that we all, we all have, two quick questions for you, just real quick. Number one, the first question may strike you as a little odd, but here's number one. It's are you approachable? Are you approachable? And what I mean by this is if you were out of line, if you were to be the one caught in the trap, would you be open to having people come into your life and speak into your life and asking you about that? Like, like are you open? You, I want you to write a word beside this. It's a key character quality. It's called humility, right? Like, like for example, let me give you some examples. Like, like let's say that, that you're, a, you're a husband and you're concerned about uh, your, your wife because you know, there's you have no problem with drinking alcohol, but it's, it's gone to where like every night after dinner, she's got three or four heavy drinks and it's kind of escalated and you're, you're beginning to see a pattern, you're beginning to have a concern. Wife, what I'm asking you is, can your husband have that conversation? Can he come and say, honey, I'm concerned about this. I, I don't know if there's a reason to be concerned or not, but I, I'm really concerned that you're becoming addicted to alcohol. And can, you, can, can he have that conversation? Are you gonna blow him off and say, well, what about you? You got your thing, blah, 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 right? Right? If, if like you're in a relationship, if you say you're a married man and you're in a relationship with, with someone that's not your uh, a wife, is a friend or whatever, and there's people around you that are seeing that, just the, the vibe doesn't seem right. There's the chemist, there seems to be some chemistry happening. There it seems to be developing more in a friendship. Is it okay if your friends come and ask you, hey, I'm concerned about that relationship? It's like, is this okay? Is this on the up and up? Like men and women, we have to be approachable in the body of Christ. We have to have the humility that we send out a vibe. It's okay. You can ask me tough questions, right? I, there's, there's, I have nothing to hide. And, and if I am off track, I, I want to have that conversation so I learn. And, and so in the body of Christ, these should be regular conversations. It's not uncommon. And it shouldn't be the end of the world that has to happen. We're just, we're just checking base. We're just because we love one another, because we care. And maybe the answer is no, we're fine. Here's this. It's like, great, okay, I just needed to have that conversation. I just needed, needed to find That's all I'm, I'm doing, you know, right? Uh, so, so can people speak into your life? Do you have people in your life that, that you've given permission to speak into your life, to hold you accountable? The second question is, are you willing to hold others accountable? And, and the character quality here is the character quality of courage, so the first was humility. This is courage. Do you have the courage that when there's someone in your life, maybe someone in your life group, or you have a friend, a family member that's a follower of Jesus, and, and there's something going on that just doesn't seem right, do you have the courage to move towards them? And, and do you have the courage that if that person will not turn and it ends up they're asked to leave Rocky Peak or asked to leave your life group, do you have the courage to stand by that decision? And to say, you know what, that's exactly what Jesus has asked, and it's hard to do, and it's painful, and like Paul, I've got tears in my eyes, but, but for your sake, because we love you, and because we're, we're concerned about the movement of Jesus, we're, we're going to take that stand, and I'm going to stand with this decision that these leaders have made, because it's the right decision. Do you have the courage to hold others accountable? So two important questions. Are you approachable? Will you hold others accountable? Let's pray.
Father, we're just so thankful for the brilliance of your word that so many times it teaches us things that are so counterintuitive, we probably never figure them out on our own. And yet you speak with such clarity, such power, at times such severity, warning us, loving us, nurturing us, teaching us how to walk with you and how to live the life you've called us to live. And so today, God, we pray that, that we would run to you in this area of accountability. We pray that, that for those of us here, there may be some of us here that were living in high-handed sin and we thought we were getting away with that and we, we realized what we're doing. And right now, we need to come to you to receive that forgiveness. We need to turn away right now. For some of us here, we, we realize there's people in our life, we've been putting off that conversation and we need to have the courage to move towards it. It may be uncomfortable. They, they may respond poorly, but we need to have it. It's a, we owe it to them. And, and so, so we need to run to you for courage. We pray whether it's, whether it's humility, whether it's courage, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's repentance, God, you would meet us in this moment. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, next week we're gonna be continuing on this series. It's actually, we're gonna be wrapping up this series, very brief four-week series. We're going into a brand new series uh, right after Easter. But next week we're moving into Easter, and I think we've got a slide coming up here. There we go. Uh, that this changes everything. The message that day is, is how the resurrection changes everything in our lives. And, and it's gonna be a tremendous day of celebration for us just to celebrate Jesus and who he is and what he's done and how he's changing our lives, how he's changed our lives by the power of his resurrection. So we're gonna be celebrating. But you know, every year, God brings people to Rocky Peak for the first time on Easter. People that are kind of far from God, maybe never been to church. I was talking with a young man just a few weeks ago. It was four years ago on Easter. First time he's been to church, his niece invited him. He, just, he wanted to be with family. There's nothing else going on and kind of never really been to church, maybe since his little boy. But, but he came, and that's where God began the journey. And today, he's a passionate Christ follower here at Rocky Peak. And, and God just gra- grabbed hold of him. And every year that happens. And so this is such an opportunity for us as a church to reach out and to invite those we've been building relationship with and to come and to join us. And so inside of your program is these little uh, invite cards. You may have seen them already. But we have plenty more out at the point. But I would just encourage you that you would be praying the next couple of weeks. God, is there someone that you want me to invite, to, someone to come with? And, th- and then come and join us that day as we celebrate the resurrection. We'll be doing some baptisms too. It's going to be a great day of celebration. Until then, uh, may the Father of all compassion, the God of all comfort be your God. May the God who leads us through hard times and shapes us through them to be like him, may he be your God. And may the God who comes after us when we go through hard times that we've caused by our own choices, may that God be our God and may he teach us to be like him as we go after one another when we get off track to rescue one another. And until uh, until next week, may he be with you this week and just fill you with his experience of the new and fresh and new ways as you follow him as uh, as your leader. So God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm